Luke chapter 7. Page 1603, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, to catch up all who maybe are visiting, we are going through the Gospel of Luke, and last week we looked at the faith of the Roman centurion, and we talked about how his faith was, was in the Word of God, in the very words that Jesus could speak, and that from a distance even he could heal this centurion's servant. And uh, I must apologize, I did not do an adequate job last week of connecting the final dots of reminding us that it is the Holy Spirit who is the powerful agent who makes that word come alive. And so I was reminded of that by uh, a faithful brother this, this week, and so I wanted to uh, offer that up to all of you. You can backlog and then apply that to what I had said last Sunday if you were here with us. Uh, so please accept my apologies. I should have known to connect that better than I did. So this is where we are, Luke chapter 7. This is God's word given to his people for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. Luke 7, verses 11 through 23. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The grass withers And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We live in a world where everyone's very sensitive about the time. No one likes to be delayed. No one likes to be late. We've all been at lunch appointments where the person across from you and you both periodically nervously touch the home button on your phone just to check the time. It's the way that most of us live life now. When the, I read somewhere that the invention of the pocket watch was actually the most important and influential invention in human history because it caused us to think about the time of day in a much different fashion. We started scheduling things much differently. We don't like delays. In this world, we're very unaccustomed to delayed gratification. And people think sometimes that it's odd to even wait more than one day to get the newest model of the new phone, new iPhone or Android phone. 
Everyone thinks, why should you wait more than 24 hours to get the seven or the eight or the nine? And for those who travel, the sinking feeling of seeing the word delayed right after your flight is about as bad as it gets. So we get the point, right? Delays are things that no one likes, especially in our hustle and bustle world. But in today's passage, Luke will hopefully allow us to see that although there are delays in the kingdom of God, and they can in some sense be agonizing, there is good in them as well. It is not that we enjoy things being delayed, or that it particularly makes us happy, but it grows our faith and it grows our gratitude for the gospel, this delayed gratification in the kingdom of God, and it produces a greater glory that will be revealed at the last day. So here is where we're going this morning from this text. There are two, what I call, agonizing delays that I'd like to bring out. The agony of delayed healing and the agony of delayed judgment. Delayed healing and delayed judgment. Delayed healing, what I mean by that is as we ponder our mortality or experience our mortality, the withering away of our mortal life, as we experience the sufferings of this present age, as we look, particularly as we look inward or to those closest to us. A delayed healing. When will God make all of this right? But what this produces in us is a greater ability to see and to savor the beauty of Jesus Christ, to savor the beauty of our Savior, and to savor the wonder of resurrection life. We see that in our text this morning. And the second agony, delayed judgment, is something that we experience as we look outwards, as we look outwards to the things like evil in the world or our enemies or things that stand opposed to God. But as we reflect on this more and more, the agony of delayed judgment, what it does is it produces in us a deeper gratitude for the glory of God's grace. Delayed healing, it leads to wonder of resurrection life. Delayed judgment leads to seeing the glory of God's grace. So then, let us turn to this text. Jesus goes from Capernaum to Nain. If we think about Galilee like Chicagoland, Capernaum would be like the North Shore. It's kind of tucked over on the north of the Sea of Galilee. Nain would be like the southwest suburbs. So there's about a 25-mile journey between Capernaum and Nain. Jesus has walked a long ways. But this whole time, he has been accompanied by a crowd, reminding us once again that Jesus is both popular and controversial. Nobody wants to miss what Jesus is going to do next. And of course, what he does today does not disappoint them. He comes up to the outside gates of Nain, and he happens upon a very sad event, a funeral, all of which are sad, but this one is especially distressing because it is a funeral for a young man in the prime of his life, probably his late teens or his early 20s. He's the kind of person to whom someone would say, you've got your whole life in front of you. Don't worry, you've got your whole life in front of you. But sadly, unexpected death has overtaken this young man. The funeral procession moves on along in front of Jesus. And that shows us that there's something even more distressing, right? Because this young man only had one member of his immediate family, his mother, his mother who was a widow. So this highlights a couple of ways in which this funeral is particularly sad or distressing. 
The first one is fairly obvious, right? This widow, this mother, has lost the one who is the central object of her affection on earth. She's already at least had to deal with the death of her husband, possibly more close relatives. We would assume that she was finding comfort and solace in her son. This son was the apple of her eye, her whole world, as we might say. So it's very sad. In the second place, she is now losing her only source of material and financial stability. She was a widow, and now uh, she's not really sure where she's going to get the things that she needs to live. She does not have a working child to support her in her old age anymore. So basically it would come down to her living off of her dowry, what her father gave to her at her wedding. And then once that runs out, she doesn't really know where she's going to get all that she needs. So Jesus sees all of this going on. He watches it pass by in front of him. And what happens? His heart goes out to her. He has compassion on her. He's moved to the point of actually going to this woman and comforting her. He says, don't cry. That can seem odd to us, right? Because she has a lot of reason to cry. But what Jesus is about to do shows why he says to her, stop crying. And it's not just that he heals this young man back from the dead, which is amazing enough. But it's the manner in which he does it. Note what he does. He touches the coffin. He touches the coffin. We see that there are, a lot of times, these categories of clean and unclean behind all of these stories. Last week, for instance, the Roman centurion didn't want Jesus to come into his home because for a Jewish person to enter the home of a Gentile, they became ritually unclean. And so a lot of these are behind all of these stories that go on. But in this story, Jesus identifies with the lowly. He stoops down and he extends mercy and compassion and blessing and he touches the coffin. In the Old Testament, this would have made an Israelite ritually unclean. But Jesus is moved to such compassion that he touches this coffin. He says to this mother, don't cry. But then he actually wipes away her tears through his healing. This should strike us, right, because in last week's passage, which is just before this one, Jesus heals the the centurion's servant from a distance. In other words, he doesn't need to touch this coffin. He doesn't need to, but he does anyways. It shows his willingness and his heart to identify with the lowly, to identify those who are in the pit. This is Jesus, the compassionate Savior. For a few days, this woman would have been in agony over suffering, right? The agony of delayed healing. That's what she was feeling. She would have been in agony, mourning her son. But imagine how amazing this event would have been in her life and how it would have transformed her ability to see the beauty of Jesus. It was specifically because her son was dead for a few days that her ability to see and to savor this compassionate Jesus was transformed, to savor his goodness. It was her agony that produced that ability. I think the same could probably be said for us, where we see an application from this text. Because for just about everyone else on earth, the funerals of our loved ones will not be transformed into celebrations of resurrection life, right? Right? Jesus is not going to show up and just start 
raising everyone at our loved one's funerals like this widow experienced. And for most of us, funerals for our loved ones is a realization of our mortality. It's an agony of crying out, when will God make all of this right? When will his healing power, his resurrection life be felt? It is all yet to be realized. But this passage is given to comfort us in such situations. Look at what Jesus does with this woman. Verse 15, what does he do? He gives him back to his mother. He gives this young man back to his mother. Jesus was moved to compassion and he was moved to heal this young man as he saw this mother's love for her son. We've talked about this before, that Jesus, in what he says and what he teaches, is not trying to undermine the human family when he says things like, I have come to set father against son and and brother against brother. He's not trying to undermine the human family. He's trying to exalt the ultimate family, the family of God, the household of God. Jesus still honors the human family, and we see evidence of that here. He is moved to compassion and to comfort this woman as he sees her love for her son. And then what does he do? He gives this young man back to his mother. Although in eternity, on the other side of the resurrection, things regarding family will be different, we can still have great hope and comfort even from this text. As we see that in some sense, the specialness of the bonds that we experience here on earth may be enjoyed there. We will see those who died in faith, those who were closest to us, those who looked to Jesus, and we will, we will together, as, as Christ gives these ones back to us, we will together praise the wonder of God's compassion and his grace as he wipes away our last tear, as he gives our loved ones back to us so that we might enjoy together the worship of God for all eternity. Our certainty in this hope is strengthened through this passage. Our ability to see the beauty of Jesus will be exalted on that day because we have gone through the agony of delayed healing. The agony of delay produces the ability to see the wonder of resurrection life, the beauty of our Savior, just like it was for this poor widow. The ability to see the beauty of Jesus. This delay refines us. God is refining us even as we go through the agony of delayed healing. Jesus shows us through this passage, through the passage before it, that he is like unto a great prophet. Both of these accounts, the raising of the widow's son, the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, uh, parallel Jesus to Elijah and Elisha. And uh, you think of the healing of the widow's son uh, with Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5, Elisha heals Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is being paralleled to these prophets, and uh, people are noticing these parallels. That's why they say uh, in our passage in front of us, a great prophet has appeared among us. But Jesus is greater than a prophet as well. Unlike Elijah, he does not need to Uh, go through an elaborate ritual involving the corpse. He does not need to pray to the Father. He simply speaks, and life is created. He is more than a prophet. And the fact that he is more than a prophet 
accentuates for us the wonder of this second point, the agony of delayed judgment, because we see it is by this great one that God's judgment is delayed and and his grace is sent forth through all the world. So then, the second point, the agony of delayed judgment. John the Baptist has already come. In Luke chapter 3, he has preached and paved the way for Jesus. He was the one who uh, is the forerunner. His message was one of returning to God, he says. Return to God, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And John the Baptist says, the axe is now laid to the root of every tree. In other words, the, the message of John the Baptist was judgment is imminent. Judgment is coming. Jesus is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. He has come to level all of God's enemies. That was the message of John the Baptist. But what has been happening since Jesus showed up on the scene? He's not been doing that, has he? He's been giving blessing. He's been giving healing. He's been teaching on grace and mercy. He's been proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. And all of this troubles John the Baptist, doesn't it? He doesn't quite know what to make of it. And he's troubled even to the point of questioning, was I wrong about Jesus? Was he really the one? Is he really the one that I said he is? John's suspicion is clear in verses 19 and 20. These two questions, John says his disciples and then his disciples say to Jesus, asking him, are you the one who was to come? And this is an allusion back to chapter 3, where John the Baptist says that there was one who was to come. There is a coming one. And so it harkens back to that to let us know that John the Baptist is actually questioning whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Thus, the disciples of John the Baptist go up to Jesus and they ask, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we wait for another? And the response of Jesus is this wonderful, systematic outlook, really, on all that Jesus is doing. It allows us to see how Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, or he has a strong allusion to the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 35, uh, and, and Jesus alludes back to it by saying this, Go back and report to John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Jesus quotes Isaiah 35 because he's wanting to confront the preconceived notions about how John the Baptist thinks about the Messiah. Jesus says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, blessed is the man who is not offended by the way that I have come to seek and to save the lost. Blessed is the man who is not offended by my gospel. Because if John the Baptist knows his Old Testament, and of course we know that he does, if he knows his Old Testament and he'll hear this allusion to Isaiah 35, he will immediately react and say, but that prophecy begins with judgment. Judgment comes before the blessing. Yes, in Isaiah 35, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are able to walk, the deaf hear, but first... It talks about the vengeance of God coming against the enemies of God and his people. John the Baptist would say, yes, but but even in quoting Isaiah 35, judgment comes first. But this is what Jesus is saying to John the Baptist. He is saying, I have come in grace. 
I have come so that all who look to me in faith might be spared from the wrath to come. John, just as you gave people an opportunity to repent, so now I delay my judgment so that I may extend grace. So what, how does all of it come together? Is, is Jesus saying that the Heavenly Father has sent him so that he might just tell everyone that everything is fine? Don't worry about it. Uh, Your standing with God is fine. Has Jesus come to say that no one is guilty, that no one is sinful? No. No, he has not come to say that. For it is not as if Jesus coming to earth has nothing to do with the wrath of God. But in Jesus' response and in his ministry and all that he says in the gospel, he is telling us what he is doing about the wrath of God. And it's this. He has come so that the wrath of God might be executed on himself as he bears that wrath in judgment. Jesus coming to earth had everything to do with the wrath of God, but he came to bear that wrath in judgment. You see, the wonder of Christ coming is that God himself in his son bears his own wrath. Think of All that's happened in the Gospel of Luke. Today, Jesus touches the coffin. In chapter 5, Jesus touches the leper. He comes and he identifies with the suffering. He identifies with the unclean. He takes infirmities upon himself in order to show us this great and wonderful truth that he has come to bear the wrath of God in his human nature. He has come to shoulder sin so that he might present people to God, those who are sinful. You see, John the Baptist had this idea that God was coming to smite all of his enemies. Jesus was going to show up with the winnowing fork and he was going to start leveling people. Time was short, but Jesus came in grace not to level his enemies, but to make many of his enemies into friends. That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus says to John the Baptist, blessed is the one who is not offended by my gospel. Blessed is the one who is not offended by how I have come to seek and to save the lost. Blessed is the one who is not offended by my delayed judgment. So perhaps when we seek to understand what God is doing and we ponder all that he has done in his son, we can be like John the Baptist. Jesus, when are you going to come and execute judgment? When are you going to come and level all of your enemies? When are you going to smite those who have spit in your face? In our lives, we know people who are difficult to love. And perhaps some of those are those who do not know Christ. And perhaps we like to think about them in that way, in that state. Somebody that we really do not like. And we like to think about them as being at enmity with God. They're going to get what's coming to them. They're without the hope of heaven. And we, in some twisted way, find comfort with that. But the call upon all of us who know the true God, the call upon all of us is to not be offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To not be offended by the delayed judgment of grace. To not be fed up with how lavish The riches of God's grace are. Think of your most bitter enemy. Hopefully we're speaking of someone outside the church. 
and ask yourself, would I be happy to see that person repent and turn to Christ? If the answer is no, then what this passage is telling us is that we do not have a deep enough appreciation for the depth of the riches of God's grace. We have not taken the time to consider that it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. It was our sin that kept Jesus on the cross until all was accomplished. For in the wrath, in the face of the wrath of God, no one could stand. In the face of the love of God, there is nothing but humility and wonder and appreciation for God's grace. See the love with which the Father has loved us that we should be called children of God. It's only because of his love that we can be his children. After World War II, there was a lot of trouble trying to make sense of everything that had happened. Particularly, this was true in Germany. They struggled as they faced this recent history of the ruthless killing of the Jews in order to wipe them out as a race. A lot of people asking questions, not really knowing how to pick up the pieces, and there was a play that was written trying to make sense of all of this. There's a play called The Sign of Jonah, written by a Lutheran pastor named Gunther Rutenborn. And in that play, the, the actors walk amongst the crowd. It was a play put on in West Berlin. They, they walk amongst the crowd in order to, to give the people there a sense of involvement, that they're wrapped up in these questions too. Whose fault was the Holocaust? Who should pay? Who is to be blamed? And the actors are, start shifting blame around. Everyone is blaming everyone else as they walk amongst the crowd. So one says, well, I drove the trains, but I didn't know what I was hauling. And someone who was a soldier says, well, I loaded the trains, but I was merely following orders. And, and blame keeps shifting farther and farther up the totem pole until they all together reach the conclusion that it was God who was guilty for the Holocaust. God's fault. He is the one to be blamed. He was in control and he let it happen. They decide to place God on trial and they decide together in court that he is guilty. So how do they punish him? How should they punish him? And so the actors begin to shout out things like this. They say, well, he ought to be exposed to darkness and terror like, like we were. He ought to be displaced just like all of those who were displaced and, and who were killed in the war. He ought to be made to walk through this world without a home. He ought to be homeless. He ought to know what it's like to lose a son. Make God know what it's like to lose a son. And he ought to, he ought to be disgraced and shamed before men. He ought to be put on display and laughed and mocked, put to shame. And he ought to know what it's like to die. He ought to die. And so I'm sure you see where the play is going. And one of my preaching mentors put it this way, that God has done more than the most bitter blasphemy could ever ask. In order to delay his judgment, he sent his son to do more than the most bitter blasphemy could ever ask. This playwright is trying to bring out the incomprehensibility, the staggering weight how it should hit you, the glory of God's grace. He is trying to bring about the sharpness of the moment that you see in Exodus 17. You remember that story. Israel is walking through the wilderness and there isn't any water. They're complaining, they're grumbling, they're blaming Moses, they're blaming God. 
And they're crying out. They're saying, God has broken the covenant. And God says to Moses, Moses, take your staff of judgment. Get all the elders, gather them up, and come to this rock, and I will stand before you on that rock. There's no other place in all of the Old Testament where God says he will stand before men. Because God does not stand before men. Men stand before God. And God says, take that staff that you used to strike the Nile, Moses, and strike the rock upon which I stand so that water might flow forth and nourish my people. You see, in that story, we have this magnificent picture of the grace of God, that God bears the blow of judgment so that water might flow forth. Christ came to the earth so that he might bear the blow of judgment so that It might be delayed and God may be found while there is still time. So that grace might be proclaimed and preached throughout all of the world. And as it relates to us this morning, as we reflect on whether or not we feel this staggering weight, God delays his judgment in order that more people who are just like us might be made to know his grace and so that we might grow in seeing the wonder of that grace. He delays our healing in order that we might grow in our ability to savor the beauty of resurrection life and the beauty of our Savior. And he delays judgment in order that we might grow in our ability to see the wonder of God's grace. Maybe you feel like you're sick of the delayed healing. Maybe you feel like you're sick of the delayed judgment. Know that it produces in you an ability to savor the beauty of Christ, to savor the beauty of the resurrection, and to feel the staggering weight of God's grace, for it was our sin that held Christ there. The Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, breathe your word, the life of your word, into our hearts. Kindle, it, kindle them aflame so that we might go out into this world ready to glorify and honor you as we are zealous for good works, as we seek your glory In our lives, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Keep us then as we go in the grace of Jesus Christ always. In his name, amen.